It's a privilege to be here with you this morning. As Pastor Adam mentioned, my name is Zach Guggenheim. I'm here with my lovely wife, Heather, and our three kids are hopefully going where they're supposed to be going. Uh, if someone could give them direction if they look lost. Um, no, we're really, we're, we're really privileged. I, I, I've gotten to know Adam and Dennis a little bit through the Gospel Coalition regional chapter in this area, and it's just been a real privilege just to be with like-minded brothers and uh, just feel so honored to be able to come here and share a little bit about Disciple Makers, share a little bit about uh, what we do and how God's at work, hopefully to encourage you, to give you a vision for maybe partnering with us in the future uh, as well. And um, I'm also just excited to dive into God's word with you because that is what we as disciple makers are about, is first and foremost getting into the scriptures and letting the scriptures be what molds men and women into the, into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Um, and so that's, that's really what we love to do, and this is one of my passions is to preach the word. So thanks for letting me be here. Uh, I'm going to share about five to seven minutes about disciple makers, and then I'm going to transition us into our time in the Word because I want to make sure it's clear what is about disciple makers and what is what is actually we're, we're getting into the Word because preaching the Word is really important. So, if you think about the secular college campus, I want you to think about it for the next 15 seconds. What's the first couple things that come to mind when you think of the secular college campus? Take a few seconds. If you want to write something down, feel free to write something down. Do you have the image in your head? I'm going to share with you what someone told me in a church about 15 years ago when I told them that I was going to a secular college. They said, man, it is really hard for anyone to even maintain their faith. At best, you maintain it because of all the partying, because of all the you know, the, the debauchery. And in fact, I, I bet it's Satan's playground. And my response to him, what, to that person was, well, I became a Christian there because I got involved with a fellowship that looked so radically different. But not only did I get involved with a fellowship that looked radically different, the goal wasn't just to be our little, small hideout of Christians just kind of cowering in the corner, but that in reality, we had this immense privilege to go and preach the gospel to the rest of a dying campus that thought they could find life anywhere else except Jesus. In fact, God was so good at our <coughs> college. We went to Muhlenberg College. Both my wife and I became Christians through godly students who invested their time in the scriptures and who saw their purpose in life more than achieving good grades, more than pleasure, more than making a lot of money, was to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And they were given that vision through staff workers who came to our campus who discipled them. That's the privilege I get as I serve with disciple makers. As I am now, for the past 14 years, I've had the privilege of serving several different campuses, investing in young men and young women's lives, that they would see that the greatest pleasure and aim in life is to know Jesus and to make him known. And that is happening at college campuses in our valley. And so just this past year at Bucknell, you know, everybody asks, you know, is God doing anything during COVID? Yes. 
Yes, in fact, we've had, we had the biggest turnout at Bucknell University we've ever had this past year. And a lot of it, I think, and I think we're going to talk a little bit about, the, about this in the text, is all of a sudden, all their opportunities for real fellowship, real community, were stripped away from them. Graduations were stripped away from them. Proms were stripped away from them. And all of a sudden, they're like, oh yeah, Facebook and Instagram doesn't cut it. <laughs> I need real relationship. And what we realize is we can give them real relationship, not just with other people, but with the God of the universe. And so in September, we had the biggest group of freshmen. We started asking, do you want to take a, a, a crash course in how to study the Bible? And 10 students would come for a four-week seminar on how to study the Bible. We'd provide lots of food because if you want college students to come, you've got to have food. And we would just do... Uh, a bunch, uh, we would get manuscripts of Philippians 2. And the first week we'd say, okay, we want you to answer the question, what do you see in the text? The second week we'd say, why do you think the author had that in the text? Third week, how do you apply what you see and what the author meant, meant in the text to your life? And then the fourth week you say, okay, how would you lead that study? And believe it or not, several of those students not only grew in their faith through that, but then they started leading their own Bible studies. They're like, I can't keep this to myself. And so now all of a sudden we have these 10 students who are excited to lead their own Bible studies, and they're there reaching out to other people. And the, the, the idea of that has perpetuated so much that this summer we hosted a barbecue for our summer students. And there's not a lot of summer students on campus at Bucknell. We had 30 students in our backyard to eat food and look at the Proverbs. One of those students is a student named Tim. He's from Canada who became a Christian this summer through the faithful study of God's word. And now he wants to grow and he wants to learn and he wants to think about how he can lead others to Christ. That's happening all across this valley. And that's what we do. We are here, what Disciple Makers is about is we want to make disciples at the college campus because we think it's the most strategic opportunity for them to, to set their course for the rest of their life so that they, they go off into their neighborhoods, into their churches, into their workplaces, or maybe go even overseas to serve and preach Christ wherever they might go and to make disciples because we believe that they can have the tools to go and reach the next generation, to then reach the next generation. And so I'm very passionate about this. So we, we love this, this mission. We love the opportunity. And it is, I hope even just the, the first few minutes here that I've shared is an encouragement to you. I would love to share with you guys just a quick opportunity of how you might be able to partner with us in this mission. Um, we are fully funded by churches and individuals. And so we, we are always needing to raise, raise support. We also want prayer partners people who pray for us and lift us up in prayer, lift our students up in prayer. And so my wife has a clipboard um, that we want to pass around. If you are interested in getting our email updates so that you know how to pray for us, or if you'd be interested in maybe how you might be able to help us even more, maybe financial support or maybe direct us to, to students that you might know that's coming our way, we would love to talk to you. Um, if you sign up, I will give you a call or I will give you a text sometime this week probably be a text this week because students are coming back uh, next 
Saturday. Um, but we would love to talk with you and share more about our mission. Um, and I'd love to talk with you after the service as well. One thing you can be praying for as well, pray this Sunday. This Saturday and Sunday, we have an outreach training with our students coming back. And Sunday, we have an outreach event where all the students have to sign up for clubs and we'll be one of the clubs there. So sign up for that, sign up for our first week. Um, And pray for our staff. I oversee eight staff at our three campuses. And, you know, we want to keep loving Jesus. You know, if we are preaching the gospel, but we're not believing the gospel ourselves, then we are, we're not helpful missionaries. And so pray that we would, we would labor for the gospel while remembering the gospel ourselves. And so, again, if you, if you have any questions, I'd love to talk to you afterwards. Please sign up if you are interested in hearing more about what we do. We'd love to, to connect with you. So thank you. I'm going to transition us to 1 John. Um, we, uh, I wish I, I could say that I had a, a reason why I chose this passage for this time, but if I'm honest, I, I just trust that God has this passage because it's the passage I'm preaching at Bucknell and Susquehanna in the next couple weeks. So, sorry, this, you guys are my practice run, so if you have feedback for me afterwards, I'd love it. Um, but I, I really, uh, the reason why I chose First John for them is, is as I've thought about kind of what our culture needs, what the next generation needs. One of the things that God kept putting on my heart is, okay, there's a lot of questions about what a Christian is. And if you look at what first John, is, John the, kind of the main thrust is, John wants to give assurance to whether you have genuine faith or not in Jesus Christ. That's kind of his main thrust. And what we see here in this first chapter is really this this especially those first four verses, it talks a lot about fellowship, community, this kind of this deep community centered around one thing. I remember my, my first days of college very vividly. We were placed into orientation groups. They were based off of our first year seminars. I was in a theater uh, seminar because back then I wanted to be on Broadway. Thank the Lord that he, he changed my direction. Not that Broadway is bad, but I really love what I'm doing much more than, than singing on stage. Um, but that's, that's what we did. And we, we played games, we, we shared deep things, and we spent lots of time together. And I remember drifting off to sleep in the fall of 2004, thinking I've made the best friends of my life, and I will never forget them. I will always keep in touch with them. And of course, you fast forward 18 years later, I haven't really kept in touch with any, any of them. We drifted apart. We recognize we had different values. We work in different parts of the world. And while we had the appearance of deep relationship, they, they weren't really all that deep. There is this, this kind of deep-seated longing in our culture right now for this relationship or fellowship, a, a group of people meeting to pursue a shared interest or aim. It, it's a group of people where you can be like-minded, you can be known, you can be loved, you can have unity with, right? We all want unity in this day and age, right? But like my first-year seminar, where the only thing tying us together was a class that ended in the spring of 2005, fellowship can only extend as far as its foundation will allow you. Work groups, graduating classes, town communities, even church, it'll all break down if their foundation is rooted in the wrong thing. And that's what John is getting at here in this book. 
Do you want fellowship with us? With, with John, with the apostles, with other Christians? Well, you know what, what you have to be? You know what you have to do? Belong to a church? A Bible study? Are you moral enough? Are you helping the poor enough? No. Those might be attributes of what a Christian is. But the author is quite clear that a Christian is this, and that someone who has the right foundation is this. It's someone who has fellowship with God. And if you have fellowship with God, then and only then can you have fellowship with his church. And so that's where we're going this morning. Let me pray, and then we're going to dive right into the text. Father, we, we come before you and praise you for your goodness to us. It is a miracle that someone like me is preaching your word, and it's a miracle that any of us would be here because our hearts despise, had, had despised you. And yet you came down, you came in the person of Jesus, and you warmed our hearts, you made us alive. So Father, would you continue to make us uh, more and more into the image of your Son as we preach your word? Would you work in our hearts? Would you burn our hearts if need be? And Lord, I pray for, for anyone here who does not know you. God, I pray that they would see how sweet your gospel is and how amazing fellowship with you is, that it far surpasses any other fellowship they could have. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Two, two things that we're going to point out, and there's going to be a few subpoints. but if you like to take notes, if you like to have an outline, it's very simple. First point, enter fellowship with God. The second point is how to enter fellowship with God. So enter fellowship with God and how to enter fellowship with God. So the first point is really just a proclamation. It's a, a, really a command. And the, the first thing we see is who God is is. So if you look, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So who God is, we see in verse 1, He was in the beginning. He is the Creator. He was there before creation happened. He is the one who started all things. He has always been. He always will be. And notice the phrase, which we have heard. So this is, this is a, a common theme both in the Gospel of John and in his letters, is that God is the God who communicates. He is not a God who just stands on high and just kind of looks on and says, well, I don't like what they're doing, but they don't know. No, he communicates to us primarily through his word. He communicates. He is the God who communicates. But also, notice the phrase, we have seen, we have touched. God became 
man. He was manifested physically. He was seen. And where the, so the author speaks not solely of a spiritual experience, but also a tangible one, a material one. God not only became man, he condescended to us. We often think of getting to God, we have to go to him. God is the one who comes down to us, to meet us where we're at. And notice the phrase, the word of life and eternal life. He came to proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest. Notice how John says that. He doesn't say that to proclaim to you eternal life which can be found in Jesus. That's not what he says. He says, proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest. He's not talking about eternal life as a thing. He's talking about it as a person. That Jesus himself is life. This eternal life, it's not just a thing to have. It's wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. It's one of the aspects that we see early in John's letter is that God is not a theoretical being that stays in the heavens and rules from on high. He's a God who comes down and wants to dwell with his people. And that, has, that is the, the story throughout the entire Bible. Genesis to Revelation, it is this story of God longing to dwell with his people. So I was, at, I was at Together for the Gospel, and I forget who was preaching, but 2 Samuel 7, it has this beautiful passage where David tells God, I want to build you a, 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 a home, a kingdom, or a, uh, yeah, the temple. I want to build you a home. And God says, I will not dwell in a home yet. It's like, why? And the reason why is because my people dwelt in tents. Therefore, I will dwell in a tent. Now, he does get a house later. But the whole throughway of the scriptures is that one of the, one of the main themes is God, despite seeing the sin of his people, makes a promise to come and dwell with his people. And we see that come into full fruition in the person of Jesus Christ. Emmanuel, God with us. He wants to identify with us. And so here's the implication. God is both holy and he condescends. He is both holy and perfect and set apart and yet he comes down. Our culture loves to try to pit these against each other, right? So God is holy, so you better be perfect, otherwise you can't come to him, which is true. But then you have the other flip side of the culture where it's, you say, oh, what well, God is love, right? God is love, God is love, God is love, so anybody can come, which there's truth to that. But the problem is we try to preach those, we try to separate those together and in reality, God, in the way that he does, fits both of them perfectly together. He is the God who is holy, that cannot be near sin. He is the God who created all things. He is the God who we should be in awe in and wonder at. And yet he is the same God who comes down and he 
washes our feet. And he's the God who knew every temptation that we could ever know. He is the God who lived, and chose to live in first century AD and live among the people and breathe the air they breathed, drink the water they drank. And he did it sinlessly. That is the God we are being invited into fellowship with. So who is God? That is God. He, he is holy and condescends. He wants fellowship with us. And then we get to the purpose of John's letter, which is to enter joint fellowship. So notice proclaim to you is repeated twice. They are proclaiming that God has been made manifest in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the word of life, eternal life. So he's a big deal, right? He's a big deal. And notice the, the so that in verse 3. So that you also may have fellowship with us. Why us? Well, they want them to be included in their community, in their fellowship. So what is fellowship? That's a big word that sometimes we just kind of throw around and say, well, we have this fellowship. We call our groups on campus, Disciple Makers Christian Fellowship. What is fellowship? Fellowship is just this joint belonging together. Now, why fellowship with us? Because they know they are in fellowship with God. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So notice their connection. To have true fellowship with others, you must be in fellowship with God. And to be in fellowship with God, you must believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin and submit to his Lordship. Now, I want to just make a caveat here. He's not saying you can't have any relationship if you're not in Christ. What he is saying is that there can never be true fellowship. So before I was in the Susquehanna Valley, I was at Penn State University. That was where I served for the first few years. Heather and I served there. And while I ministered at Penn State, there was this reality that I wouldn't be able to enjoy the depth of relationships surrounding Penn State football. Because while everyone there, they knew the chants, they knew the songs, they knew all the rallying cry, I was sitting there going, O-H-I-O, <laughs> because I was born in Columbus, Ohio, and they all wanted to throw me out. Only when I put those things away and wore blue and white to pacify my dear friends could I enjoy a greater sense of fellowship around football. And I was also so much safer. <laughs> we, we enjoy a depth of relationship that is centered around a similar foundation. This has always been true. What foundation are we gathering under? What foundation are we inviting people to? Is it morality? Is it church? Which isn't a bad thing. Is it maybe a Christian subculture? Like, do we, do we invite people to things just because it makes us comfortable? Or are we pursuing something more? Are we pursuing a God who drew near to us and is good and yet is king and has the right to order our lives any way he pleases? That is the God we are invited to have fellowship with. 
and that grants us the sweetest fellowship with each other. Now, how does this apply? To have true fellowship with Christians, we must have fellowship with God and Jesus Christ. There are great things you can enjoy in community without Jesus. You can be friends with people in the church. You can enjoy potlucks. You might even be able to speak the lingo. But what does it look like to enter fellowship? It looks like submitting to his word, submitting to his lordship. It looks like striving to know God's desires for me rather than pursuing my own. It looks like living my life for the sake of his glory and for the love of neighbor rather than for myself. Ironically, it's in living for God's glory where joy might be found. And we see that in the third thing we see in this enter fellowship, which is the second purpose of John's letter. Notice what he says. Verse 4, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Say it again. So that our joy may be complete. John's letter is explicit. He wants to complete joy. He wants a complete joy. What is going to cause them joy that friends, strangers, people they they don't know will be able to join in their fellowship with God? That they will not only have eternal life, but they know eternal life. It is joy unsurpassed telling people about the good news of Jesus, that he died for sinners, and it is a joy completed to see sinners see their need for Christ as their Savior, and they place their faith in him. So here's a question. Does sharing the gospel with others seem joy-filling to you? Like when you hear the word evangelism, what do you think of? been doing it on college campuses for 14 years. Can I tell you what I often think of when I think of evangelism? Panic! But notice what he says here. It's not the scary thing that Christians are supposed to do. It is supposed to be the most joy-filling exercise. And you see that throughout the scriptures, right? In Acts when the, the apostles are persecuted for their faith, they rejoice because they were persecuted. They, they knew they were worthy to be persecuted for the name of Jesus Christ. It's not what we see in our culture today, right? He says it's for joy that we're preaching the gospel to you. So here's the application. If you're not a Christian here, and I, I don't want to assume that all of us here know Jesus, There is a deep joy in telling you what you can have. Relationship with the Most High God, forgiveness of sin, a changed life from death to life. And to give you the best purpose you could ever imagine, to give God glory with your whole life. And if you are a Christian, the call here is to fight for maximum joy. Fight for maximum joy. There is no greater joy you can have than sharing the gospel with people who are dead and need life. People who are heading for hell and needing to be rescued for heaven. You and I get the privilege of being on a rescue ship, throwing out life preservers to people and bringing them on board and then training them to do likewise. That's our 
call. That is our joy. So that's entering fellowship with God. Now, how do we do it? How do we enter fellowship with God? Three things, three things we will see. First, know that God is light. What does the author mean by light? Well, we often think of it as purity. Good is light. Evil is darkness. Light in the Bible does play off that imagery quite a bit. But there's, I think, another intended implication as well. It reveals. It exposes. It purifies and transforms. God is light. He is pure. He reveals. He exposes. He purifies and transforms. Now, notice, this isn't what he does, this is who he is. This is his character. There is no sin in him. He will not change. He won't keep up with the times or come to a realization that, huh, maybe I was wrong about that. He doesn't do that because he's God. He does not change. He defines sin and righteousness because he is righteousness personified. There is no sin in him. He cannot tolerate sin. There is no darkness in him at all. And in his perfection and purity, he invites us to know who he is and what he's like, what he loves, what he hates. To to be able to better love my wife, I must know her. If I give her a gift based off of what I think she likes without actually knowing her, like, I'm going to give her the gift, and she's like, this is, like, yay? I don't don't like this. What? Do you even know me? How often do we say we love God and yet refuse to know him? We say we believe in God, but then refuse to get to know him in his word and spend time with him. It's like treating God like a trophy wife, only there to dangle him on our arms for our own acclaim, rather than knowing him progressively and intimately. So again, the application is this. Know God, what he loves, what he commands, what he desires. And that's, that's where this connects, okay? Because we need to know that he is righteousness and what he means by righteousness. We need to know what he means by sin and what he considers sin. We need to know what he loves and what he hates. And as we do that, the second thing that happens is we become exposed by God's light. Be exposed by God's light So you'll notice, I'll read verses 5 through 10 again for us. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So you'll you'll notice in this, as we talk about light, there is this avoidance. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Notice the comparison 
walking in darkness while saying you walk in the light means we lie. It also means we don't practice the truth. But it also means that we say of God that he is a liar and his word is not in us. Notice here, it's not saying that if we sin, it's if we cover up to pretend like nothing is wrong. And so to avoid God's light is to hide. That sound familiar to anybody? Genesis 3, fig leaves. It was my wife that you gave me. It was the serpent that, it's hiding, it's avoiding. But notice, coming into the light, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. To walk in the light starts not with not sinning, but with confessing that you have sinned. That you have called God a liar, that you have done wrong, that you have done injustice, that you have been self-centered and selfish, that you have hated God and gone after idols. The call to fellowship with God starts by recognizing that God saw you do all these things and yet he still became manifest. Jesus did not come to find the good people. He came for sinners because he wants to forgive. Romans 5.8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I'm finishing up a degree uh, in biblical counseling, and Ed Welch, who is a great biblical counselor, the thing he keeps saying that has been so helpful to me, Jesus delights in weakness. He delights in us being weak. And I don't mean like, you know, that we just, all right, well, I'll stop. I'll just start being weak all over the place. That's not the point. He delights in us recognizing our need for him. He delights when we come to him and asking for forgiveness. So what's the application? Confess sin. Confess everything. Confess sin to God, confess sin to one another. If you can't think of anything to confess, then confess your pride because we are always prone to think too highly of ourselves. So we need to know that God is light. We need to be exposed by God's light and then we need to be cleansed in God's light. So sin makes us unclean. We must be cleansed. So coming to the light allows cleansing. Notice what he says in the text. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The next verse, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So confession to Christ and to one another brings cleansing. Not only are we forgiven, but we are made holy and blameless in his sight. So while there may be consequences of sin, you will never be judged for your sin because you'll be judged righteous in God's eyes because Jesus was judged guilty for you. 
And because of that, you have a new identity. You are no longer unrighteous, but now you are righteous. You are no longer dirty and shame-ridden, but you are pure and blameless. I don't know about you, but I often don't live that way. How many of us, we, we have labels that we cling to that ignore the cleansing of God? Like, do we cling to the label of dirty and ashamed, guilty, and angry? Like, friends, those might be how you feel, but what about this? You were dirty, but Jesus washed you by his blood. You were guilty, but Jesus took on your guilt and has made you innocent and righteous. You were angry, but God is redeeming your sinful anger. You were ashamed, but Jesus was ashamed so that you could be honorable. How does this apply? Trust Christ's cleansing of you. We trust Christ's cleansing by remembering who we are. Are in him. We are redeemed, we are purified, we are made righteous, holy, blameless, and we trust Christ's cleansing by living out who we are meant to be. So if we are now made pure, we should kill sinful desire and put on righteous, pure desires. And again, anytime you see sinful desire, what do we do? We confess. We put off selfishness and we put on the love of neighbor. And when we see selfishness in our hearts, we say, God, forgive me and change my desires. So that I, and then we act in faith to love our neighbor. We repent of our prideful purpose in life and we trade it for a Godward purpose. And every time that we see that prideful purpose in life, we praise God that he showed it to us and we confess and we turn from it. So here's, here's the bottom line. If you are a Christian, this is the reality you have. You, are, you, you don't just have the ability to live a moral life. You have fellowship with God, which enables fellowship with his church. Even our pursuit of holiness should be born out of this deep fellowship with God knowing what he loves, knowing what he hates, and knowing that every time we do the things he does not like, we come to him. He cleanses us so that we might, might become more like him.